Well, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the enormous privilege of an open Bible and Christian fellowship. Lord, we gather here this morning with many different concerns and pressures and backgrounds, and we need a touch from you. So please draw near to us as we draw near to you now, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you uh, do a search on the internet for Samson's tomb, uh, you'll find a photograph of a really rather impressive looking monument. Uh, It's overlooking the Valley of Sorek, uh, which our passage tells us is the place where Samson met Delilah. Uh, The tomb appears to be remarkably well preserved, uh, evidence I think that Samson is still celebrated today as a hero in Israel, 3,000 years after he died. But uh, his reputation as a hero doesn't really prepare us, does it, for the first verse of our passage this morning. Verse 1 says, One day Samson went to Gaza, where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. This final chapter in Samson's story is sobering and shocking from the very first verse. Uh, Last week we saw that Satan tried to destroy Samson with the attack of the famous lion. On that occasion he failed. But now here, at the very end of Samson's life, Satan attacks him again, but this time with the roaring lion of sexual immorality and on this occasion he is terrifyingly successful. But uh, neither Samson nor his sexual immorality are actually the main point of the chapter. No, there are two key events in the chapter and they are both to do with God. Because of course the key events in all our lives are always to do with God. I hope you know that. The first of these events is in verse 20 where it says that Samson did not know that the Lord had left him. So there came a point when the Lord actually left Samson. And the second decisive event is in verse 28 where Samson prays O Sovereign Lord, remember me. And God did indeed remember him in the most spectacular way. The whole chapter centres on those two things that God did. The Lord left, the Lord remembered. And that's what we're going to be thinking about together for the next few minutes. So firstly, the Lord left. At the end of verse 19, we read that Samson's strength left him. Uh, His hair had been cut, his strength has left him. And then verse 20 says, he did not know that the Lord had left him. Now I for one find that very disturbing. We've seen, haven't we, in the previous chapters, that the Lord was the source of Samson's incredible supernatural strength. But now the Lord has left him. And what we have here, you see, is Samson by himself. 
What a terrifying position to be in, to be you by yourself. Because, of course, one of the great joys of becoming a Christian is knowing that we're not by ourselves any longer. Because the moment we become a Christian, the Lord came to live in us by his Holy Spirit. And the Bible teaches, doesn't it, that once the Lord has called us, he keeps us. So the New Testament believer has the assurance of the lasting presence of the Holy Spirit living within him or her. But, can I say that the warnings of Holy Scripture are never purely theoretical? No, the Apostle Paul says that all these warnings, including this one here in Judges 16, are examples for us. We're meant to take them seriously. Because even if Satan can't actually destroy and take away our ultimate salvation, he never, never gives up trying to destroy us on earth if he can. And uh, although it's not the kind of thing that any of us want to think about on Sunday morning, and I certainly don't enjoy having to talk about it, I do need to remind you that Satan wants to destroy your life. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your witness. And if you're in ministry, he most certainly wants to destroy that too. And friends, you and I need to take this most seriously and we need to tremble at it. Otherwise, we might grieve the Holy Spirit and find that this side of heaven... Our Christian lives are spoiled by sin, by sadness, and by regret. Now the context of our passage this morning reminds us, I think, that none of us can relax. Because at the end of chapter 15, we're told that Samson led Israel for 20 years. And at the end of chapter 16... It says he had led Israel for 20 years. Now those two statements, either side of the story we're looking at this morning, are telling us that Samson has been walking with God for a long time. He wasn't converted last week. And all of us, I think, and especially those of us who've been Christians for some time, need to hear the warning of Judges chapter 16 that Satan has particular traps and snares for those who've been believers for some time. So let's focus then on what happens in verses 1 to 19 that leads to the devastating result in verse 20 that Samson didn't actually know that the Lord had left him. Firstly, notice presumption. Look at what Samson says to himself in verse 20. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. You see, what's going on there is that he's reasoning from past experience that he can handle this situation by himself but he's lost touch with his own spiritual condition. 
He felt he was equal to the challenge because he'd been in this situation before. Now that, I think, is one of the snares that awaits us when we've been Christians for several years. We say, I've done this before. I've been in this situation before. And we feel confident, irrespective of our obedience to God. And you know there's a poison that seeps into our lives when confidence, our confidence, shifts away from God and onto ourselves. You see, when you were a new Christian, uh, whenever a challenge or a danger came along, you knew that you were totally dependent on God to help you through it, didn't you? Uh, Maybe it was a particular group of friends or family that you used to spend most of your time with. They were your top priority. But uh, when you became a Christian, uh, you knew, didn't you, that you could no longer spend quite as much time with them as you did before. Uh, Because for a start, you knew that you needed to be in church on Sunday. You knew that your spiritual life depended on it. But it wasn't going to be easy to take that step back to tell your friends and family about this tremendous change that had taken place. So, you cried out to the Lord for help. And he did. But now, you see, you've been a Christian for a number of years and uh, the opportunities for doing things with friends and family on the weekend aren't going to be around forever. And so you find yourself saying, well, I know it means missing church now and again, but I've been a Christian for a long time now, and I know what I'm doing. Friends, be careful when you think you know what you're doing. When we assume God's blessing, rather than seeking his blessing, we're on very thin ice indeed. Listen to what uh, Dale Ralph Davis has to say about Samson in this passage. I mentioned his commentary last week, which I think is the best. He says this, Samson is a picture of Israel, one raised up out of nothing, richly gifted, who panders around with other loves, and yet always expects the Lord to be at his disposal. That's presumption. Beware presumption. But there's more because there's also a process here. Come with me to verse 1 again. You see, Samson didn't suddenly end up in a disaster. It was a gradual process. Samson was moving along a particular path. And if you and I end up in serious sin... Can I say it's not because we've suddenly leapt into it? No, it's usually because we've drifted into it gradually. So verse 1 says, One day Samson went to Gaza. That's Philistine country. What a very strange journey for Samson to make, for Israel's judge to make. It was actually the furthest Philistine city from where he lived. That's interesting. Maybe he didn't want anybody to recognise him. Perhaps he went in secret. It's always very dangerous to do something that is spiritually dangerous 
if you do it in secret. And uh, here Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. Now that doesn't mean that he just caught a glimpse of her and then looked away. No, it means that he looked at her lustfully and the text says he went in to spend the night with her. That is a pretty grim sequence, isn't it? The process of sin. Beware that process. Let's learn to recognise it in our own lives and not just in Samson's life. Because there's a danger that we read verse 1 and we say to ourselves, well, isn't that awful? But we actually need to look inside ourselves and say, yes, isn't that awful? And the issue for us might not actually be sexual immorality. Uh, It might be greed. It might be pride. It might be self-righteousness. You see, whatever it is, the way of these things is that the first step usually isn't so terribly bad. I mean, there's nothing in the Bible, is there, that says it's a sin to go to Gaza. Does it say that in your Bible? It doesn't say that in mine. So the first step can usually seem very innocent. And the second step, well, that's just a little bit further on. Not terribly risky in itself. What can possibly be wrong with seeing? But but very often by the third step, you're on the slippery slope. And it's only when it's already too late that you realise that your life is in the hands of a power that's stronger than you are. This, of course, I think is why the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. Because, you see, this is what Satan wants to do with all of us. So, in the run-up to Samson's fall, we find presumption, we find a process, we also find playing here. Because in verses 4 to 20, Samson is playing with sin. This, of course, is the famous relationship that he has with Delilah. There's something desperately pathetic about it. Because on the one hand, Samson is after pleasure, and on the other, Delilah, well, she's after the money. Delilah is offered the equivalent of a national lottery rollover jackpot. Uh, In verse 5, you'll notice that each of the rulers of the Philistines, and there were five of them, they were going to give her 1,100 shekels of silver. So she's going to end up with 5,500 shekels of silver. Now, in the next chapter of Judges, which unfortunately we're not going to be able to look at in this series, you'll find there a man whose annual salary was 10 shekels of silver. But Delilah's got her eyes fixed on 5,500. It's a fortune. But she's hardly subtle, is she? Uh, She doesn't try and conceal her intentions from Samson. You know, every suggestion that he makes, she immediately does it. I think he must have been a bit thick at this point in his life. Why didn't he twig? Why didn't he get it? But eventually he's so very fed up with this woman nagging him that he tells her everything. 
I'm sure you know this, but it is important to remember that Samson's hair was not the source of his power. No, it was the symbol of his commitment to God. And the most telling thing of all is that having revealed the secret of his strength, that if you shave my head, my strength will go, he actually allows himself to fall asleep on her lap. Now, now why did he do that? Surely it is that he didn't really believe that it would make any difference. Because when he does wake up to find that his head has been shaved, he doesn't actually believe that his strength has left him, does he? Because he says, I'll go out, go out as before and shake myself free. But you see, his hair signified his commitment to God. And Samson despised it. And by despising it, he was playing with sin. Now, play and pray, in English, have only one letter different. But they are worlds apart. And it seems to me that either we play with sin, or we pray against sin. And we make that choice every day. And yesterday's choice is not actually sufficient for today. Every single day, I need to pray that God will deliver me. That's why the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, pray that you will not fall into temptation. But Samson didn't pray against sin, did he? He played with it. So Samson's undoing was his presumption on God's favour... It was the process of sin that he allowed into his life and it was playing with sin. And here also, I think, is a frightening paradox. Paradox is opposites, isn't it? What have we got in verse 20? Fix your eyes on verse 20. Visually, we've got a man of immense power, the judge of Israel, who is now completely helpless. Outwardly, he's Israel's judge. He's been the nation's leader for 20 years. That's the external picture. But inwardly, Samson is a slave of his own lust. He can still talk about God, of course, which he does in verse 17. He says, I've been a Nazarite, you know, set apart to God from birth. So he can use all the right religious language but his words and his life are in two different countries. I'm sure you'll remember that in each of the last three chapters we've been told, haven't we, that the spirit of the Lord came on Samson in power at certain points. But you know, we don't find that phrase anywhere in chapter 16. That's significant, don't you think? And friends, you know, it is absolutely terrifying when what we look like on the outside and what we're really like on the inside, when those two things part company. Whatever you do, 
Don't let your outward appearance and your inner reality be in two different places. Because it's a lie you can't sustain, none of us can. And each one of us has got a daily battle to make sure that by the Spirit we keep our outward profession and our inner reality in step with one another in order that the Lord will not leave us to ourselves. That's why the Lord Jesus prays towards the end of his life, apart from me, you can do nothing. So there's a paradox here. And then also there's a price in verses 21 to 25, and it's a price that none of us wants to pay. You know, the Bible is brutally honest about what happens when we buy the lies of Satan. And here, Samson buys the lie that gratifying his lust will satisfy his heart. But he never considered the price, which is there in verse 21. Look how horrific verse 21 is. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, took him down to Gaza, Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding in the prison. See, instead of satisfying his heart, Samson loses everything. He's seized, blinded, imprisoned, chained, utterly humiliated. And in verse 25, the man who once terrorised the Philistines is brought out to perform for them as if he were no more than a dog in a circus. What a terrible, terrible cost to this man. And what about the cost to the honour of God? I wonder if you've ever thought about that when you've read this story. It is an extraordinary thought, I believe, that the God who created the whole universe would put his glory on the line with us human beings so that it can, under certain circumstances, be tarnished by our foolishness. And so here the Philistines gather for a huge party to celebrate their triumph. Have you ever wondered why they didn't just kill Samson? Well, it's surely because they wanted to utterly humiliate this man. And you'll notice in verse 23 that they offer a great sacrifice to their god, Dagon. So this wasn't a small gathering, was it? This wasn't a minor celebration. And the word on everybody's lips in verse 23 was, notice this, our god has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And it's very ironic because the word delivered there is the same word we saw in chapter 15 when Samson spoke about the Lord giving him or delivering him that marvellous victory over a thousand Philistines. But now the people are saying, Dagon has delivered a great victory for the Philistines. And as Samson stands there, the name of Dagon fills the air. 
Now think about what's happening spiritually. Because for just a moment, Satan has shifted the glory that belongs to the God of Israel away from the God of Israel and onto a dumb idol. And that, of course, is what Satan always wants to do, isn't it? He wants to shift the glory that belongs to Jesus Christ and give that glory to rugby, to movie stars, to Mohammed, to politicians. Anything and everything except to the Lord Jesus, to whom it rightly belongs. Remember, will you, at this point, that Samson can no longer see because his eyes have been gouged out. But he can hear. And he can hear their chanting, can't he, in that temple. Dagon, Dagon, Dagon. Can't actually hear anything else. The story of Samson is a tragedy. Had he lived, what might he have gone on to do? I mean, we'll never know, will we? But do we need a more severe warning of what can happen when God becomes unreal to us? See, friends, there are things that we can't actually undo when we abuse God's kindness. And even though we might repent with tears, only heaven will undo the damage but heaven will undo the damage the Lord left. But Satan here doesn't have the last word because, secondly and more briefly, the Lord remembered. Verses 25 and 26 are the low point in the chapter. Just have a look at them with me. While they were in high spirits... They shouted, bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he performed for them. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so that I may lean against them. And Samson performed for them. They uh, stood him amongst the pillars, much as they might have done with a donkey or an animal. And a servant has to hold his hand to guide him, utterly humiliated. And on the roof of the building, the Philistines are having a party. All 3,000 of them, wildly celebrating Dagon's victory. It's very interesting that archaeologists have found exactly this kind of building dating back to this period, building temples with two huge stone pillars supporting an upper story. And the end of verse 27 says all the rulers of the Philistines were there. Maybe Delilah was the guest of honour. Now the text doesn't actually say that, but it's entirely possible. And all the top people, all the top brass in Philistine society were there. It was an occasion not to be missed. But in his moment of greatest humiliation, Samson prays to another God. 
And surrounded as you and I are by the idols of our culture, we also on Sunday mornings pray to another God. And can I say that this story reminds us, doesn't it, that there is no pit of despair, there is no situation of disaster where our God cannot hear our prayer. It's actually the third and, in my opinion, the greatest of the prayers in the Samson story. And uh, of the three, it's the simplest and the most memorable. It's there in verse 28, if you would like to put your nose on it, where Samson prayed, O Sovereign Lord, remember me. Does that ring any bells? should do. It's the prayer of the thief on the cross, isn't it? It's also what God did for Noah when the ark came to rest on dry land after the flood. Do you remember that? God remembered Noah. That doesn't mean that God forgot him and uh, suddenly woke up one morning and said, oh yes, I used to know somebody called Noah. I wonder how he's getting on. That's not what it means. It means God acted in power for him. And here Samson pleads with God, O Sovereign Lord, remember me. O God, please strengthen me just once more. And of course, God did remember Samson in the most stunning way in verse 29. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he pushed with all his might and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus, he killed many more when he died than while he lived. The Philistine top brass are wiped out. But think about this for a moment. Remember back in chapter 13, what was it that the angel of the Lord said about Samson to Samson's mother? Chapter 13, verse 5, he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Pretty good beginning, wasn't it? Did anybody go home saying that day, what a marvellous God Dagon is? Anybody doing that? No. So you see, the lasting headline on chapter 16 is not the Lord leaving Samson. It is that the Lord remembered him. Yes, Samson had sinned, he'd failed badly, but God did not despise this failing man. And I, for one, am so very glad that he didn't. I mean, is there anybody here who is not a failing servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there anybody here who is without sin? Is there anybody here whose track record in the Christian life is so absolutely marvellous that God has absolutely got to hear your prayer. 
Personally, I'm so very glad that as a failing man, I have a God who hears the prayers of failing people. What would you like the words to be on your gravestone, I wonder? I've no idea actually what they wrote on Samson's gravestone, but it might have been the Lord remembered him. And that would be a marvellous epitaph, wouldn't it, for all of us? And when we stand back, of course, there's something else here, isn't there? Because when you consider the whole story, chapters 13 to 16, there's a preview of a greater deliverer here, isn't there? Because like all of the judges in the book, Samson makes us long for a better deliverer. And just as his nativity story in chapter 13 reminds us of a greater nativity still to come, doesn't the death of Samson point to a greater death? Doesn't it? I mean, think about it. Samson's weakness and humiliation. The mockery heaped on him by the crowd. The apparent victory of his enemies. Samson crying out to God in the hour of his darkness and winning a victory in his death that was a bigger victory than any victory he won in his life. By his death, Samson began the deliverance of Israel from their enemies. And by his death, the Lord Jesus Christ has delivered us from our enemies. Sin, death and the devil. And as God left Samson, he left Jesus. But if God left Samson because of his sin, God left Jesus because of my sin and because of your sin. But not forever. God remembered him. Because his great cry on the cross, it is finished, was a cry of victory, wasn't it? His death was an infinitely greater victory than any victory he won in his life. A victory so great that every Christian is going to be praising God for that victory forever and ever. So with all that in mind, let me leave you with something to think about this week. Won't you please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2 on page 863. 1 Peter chapter 2, page 863. And as you're turning there, let me remind you that the Apostle Peter here is writing to Christians under pressure. Christians under pressure in every age. And that includes us. Now fix your eyes on verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, page 863. And he's speaking about Christians. And he says this. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now I want to say to you 
that Samson's story, yes, it's Israel's story, but it's our story too. Because as Samson was chosen by God to be a holy man, a Nazarite, Peter says that all Christians were chosen by God to be a holy nation. Why did God do that? Verse 9 says that we might declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvellous light. In other words, the reason that God chose you and the reason God chose me is that we might tell the world what God has done for us in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. You know, bringing us out of darkness and into his marvellous light. And I'll tell you what, God has staked his glory on that. Now the question as I close is will we embrace that calling? Will we commit ourselves to doing this and enjoy God's blessing and favour while we live? Or will we be like Samson and allow ourselves to be seduced by the gods of the culture, by other things, uh, so that in the end we suffer disgrace and shame. Because I'm sure you remember those words of the Lord Jesus in Mark chapter 8, when he said, if anybody is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. Now surely, no one in his right mind would want to pay that price. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, if there are any of us here who've been playing with sin and presuming on your favour, may we flee and run to you and plead for your deliverance and mercy. Please deliver us from the clutches of Satan and help us by your Holy Spirit to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Father, we praise you that you are the God who remembers those who cry to you in faith. And so in these days of increasing immorality, spiritual carelessness and nominal religion, Father, we cry out to you this morning, remember us and work in power that the name of Jesus Christ might be honoured among us, for it is in his name we ask it. Amen.